Um, it, uh, it summarizes the story from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Goes over that territory again. And it looks ahead, like we saw in our Bible reading from again, to what will happen in the rest of the Bible. It's an interesting book because, and this is something you'll come across in your seminars, I think, today, this morning, later this morning. It ties together this interesting theological uh, knot in, uh, in the Bible between promise, like the promise to Abraham, and law, the law of Moses. Between works and obedience and faith and trust. It's a book that's interesting because it swings almost from optimism to pessimism to optimism to pessimism. So it has both a positive view in many ways of God's grace, of God's people, God's purpose, of God's kingdom, but then also, as we'll see, there's a, there's a negative cloud over the book at the same time. And so that's really the particular thing we'll, we'll look at today is how do we understand uh, promise and law, obedience and faith. Where does the law of Moses fit in to God's uh, unfolding plan of the kingdom of God, the saving kingdom of God? Because here in Deuteronomy, we see the kingdom that, that was first seen in the creation of the world, Adam and Eve in the garden, but were then overturned in the curse, and they listened to the servants instead of God, and they were banished from their kingdom, and sent of exiled out into a cursed world. But then Abraham promised that in the future God would make a great nation and put them in a land that he would show to Abraham and they would be a blessing to the whole world. Well, now here we are, Deuteronomy, where it's like we're right on the, on the edge of this new kingdom getting fulfilled. Yeah, that they, were, they were in Egypt, away from the land that was promised, um, suffering in slavery, but God rescued them and has brought them. And then there was this the wandering in the desert that delayed things. But the start of Deuteronomy, it, it begins saying, 40 years it took them to get here. Of course, it should have only taken 11 days, is what Moses says at the start of Deuteronomy, but it took 40 years. But finally, they're here, right on the edge of the land, ready for the promises to Abraham to come true, ready for this new expression of the kingdom of God, of the saved people who will be blessed and who will bring blessing to the whole cursed world. That's a really exciting point. It's, a, it's an end on a season of a Netflix show kind of point. It's a cliffhanger episode. Yeah, and you have to wait a whole year for the next one to drop. Deuteronomy has a, an interesting structure to it. In, in the Hebrew Bible, it's called These Are the Words of. Um, a lot of the Hebrew Bible names for their books just come from the first words of the book. If you don't know what to call a book, we'll just look at the first few words. And that's a book, so maybe it could be called Kul Yishmael, would be your own. Uh, a Hebrew Bible book name. So Deuteronomy begins, chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words of Moses. And so Hebrew Bible don't call it Deuteronomy, but calls it these are the words of. That's a pretty good name in this case. Because you know what Deuteronomy is? The words of Moses. It's actually like three sermons, mega sermons. You think I go on a long time, Moses goes on a very long time. Um, there's three kind of big sermons or teaching, speaking blocks. Um, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 is the first of the words of Moses. He kind of retells their recent history from the book of Numbers. Um, and then there's a big kind of sermon application in chapter 4. Then chapter 5 through to 26, that's a killer, that one. 5 right through to 26 is the second big chunk of the words of Moses. Begins with the Ten Commandments. And that's actually why our Bible name is Deuteronomy, which means second law. 
Um, uh, also, decent name for the book. These are the words of Moses that gives the second law. Um, these are the Ten Commandments, and then in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, a lot of that is kind of like sermon, general sermon appeal, encouragement, challenge, application. It's broad, big picture. We'll look at some of that this morning. And then from 12 through to 26, it's detailed regulations and decrees. Loosely structured around the Ten Commandments. Loosely. And so that's a, a larger chunk of detailed law. So 5 to 26 is the second sermon. And then um, 27 through the end of the book is, is a collection of what next stuff. Uh, 27-33 has speeches of various kinds that looks ahead to what will happen after this time, right into the future. There are blessings and cursings for those who obey or disobey the law. Um, there's preparations for entering into the land for God's promise, calling on them to obey the Lord, warning them that they won't succeed in obeying the Lord, um, and then ends in chapter 34 with the death of Moses outside the promised land. 34, you can look with me if you like, 34 verse 5. Deuteronomy 34, 5. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where the grave is. Verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his officials of this whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. And so ends the books of Moses. So this sermon, we're not going to cover everything that's usual, or even touch on everything, but we're particularly going to look at two things. How the book shows the pattern of the kingdom of God, that's our theme of this week, the kingdom of God. How it shows the pattern of the kingdom of God, what we've been seeing in our seminars, God's blessing and rule over his people in a place different. And then secondly, this challenging question of how law and promise, faith and obedience, works and grace, how they fit together. Because Deuteronomy is really helpful in showing us that the place of the law of Moses and obedience to the law in the kingdom of God. Because you see, the Bible talks about the law in a couple of different ways. Uh, if those of you who grew up in church or familiar with the New Testament, say the book of Romans, you'll know how often in the book of Romans we get told the gospel has come not according to the law, apart from the law. For the law kills, the law um, uh, brings wrath, the law is written on stone, the law is not according to the law, but rather according to faith alone, by God's grace, apart from the law. You might be familiar with that kind of teaching in Romans and in Galatians, this strong contrast between law and faith. Obedience to faith, works of faith, yes? That seems to say the law is not a good thing. Um, uh, in the sense that it's, it's a problem. It was added in, the Apostle Paul can say, uh, to make transgressions increase. That kind of stuff. And yet, on the other hand, the Bible often speaks really positively about the law. So Jesus says, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I have come to get rid of the law, I've come to fulfill it. Uh, Psalm 119, we talked about yesterday, this epic psalm, that's this celebration of the blessing and the goodness of the law. I delight in your law, your law is life, your law is free, and your law is good. So, which one is it? 
It's a more uh, uh, difficult burden, a, a thing that brings death and wrath and, and is separate from the gospel, or is it a good thing? Have you ever pondered that one? It's a tricky one. Well, that's what we're going to tackle in our sermon this morning. How about I pray briefly and we dive into the first point that the Lord is God of the whole earth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us this morning we ask. Give our uh, minds a sharpness to understand um, the teaching this morning and help me teach clearly and truly. Um, but help us all not just understand with our mind, but also receive your word humbly, obediently, trustingly, as words not just of human beings, but the word of God. Make us new by your word. Guide us and lead us by your word through your spirit. Help us see more of your mind and your purposes. Help us think your thoughts after you. Help us understand your word better and know how to worship you, trust you, and follow you, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, kind of a, you know, a recap on yesterday, the Lord is the God of the whole earth. Deuteronomy shows us that. That this God, who is now the God of Israel, is on this edge, this promised land to bring Israel into this particular land, we must forget he's still the God of the whole world. He's not just the God of Israel. So, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. <coughs> oh, sorry, this is a little bit of mine, I should have thought that. Um, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 14. Um, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens. This is Deuteronomy 10 14. To your Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, and the earth, and everything in it. And yet your Lord, that the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. Or verse 17 of chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty, and also one who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. The great God, the God of everything, the God of every other God, the Lord of every other Lord. We're not talking here about polytheism, lots of different gods, and equally gods, and whatever you believe, and whatever people you are, in your community, you have your own God. No, it's not many different gods. It's not that you and the universe and Mother Nature are God. No, this is the great God, the God who made everything else. Compared to this God, every other spirit, and genie, and demon, and ghost, and, and so-called God, is really just a, an angel, a creation, a... a, a thing that he made. God is the God of all, created God of everything. Or back to chapter 4, verse 39. Chapter 4, verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day, Deuteronomy 4, 39, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. All throughout this book, Repeatedly, we get that kind of expression, heaven and earth. Call heaven and earth to attention. Uh, I created heaven and earth. Listen, O heaven, listen, O earth. Reminding us again and again that God's dealings are the dealings of the Creator with the whole of the universe. He's the God of all the nations. He's not just Israel's pet God, their lucky God, their patron saint. He's the God of all the nations. Chapter 4, verse 19. When you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed about out of them and worshiping things. Your Lord, your God, has a portion of all the nations under heaven. He made it all. You don't worship the sun, the moon, the stars. The Lord's above it all. He made it. Or um, 4 verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time. 
one. From the day God created man on earth, asked from one end of heavens to the other, that anything so great ever happened, or has anyone like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking over the fire as you have and live? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing, by miraculous signs, wonders, by war, by mighty hand, outstretched arm, by great awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt? Before your very eyes.
as the God overarching the whole world, He is the Lord of all the world and He judges and saves all the world. As the God of the whole world, His dealings with Israel are, are kind of the center of it, um, but everything else is still part of His rule. He judges the nations and He saves them. Particularly the saves, but just hear something in Deuteronomy. Way back in the promise to Abraham, God promised Abraham yesterday. So there God uh, says to Abraham, You go, the land I'll show you, I'll make your descendants a great nation, I'll bless you, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. God, through Abraham's nation, Moses' people, Israel, through this kingdom, the world will be blessed, and God's blessing rule will extend over the world once more. We'll see a hint of that. Um, we won't jump ahead to it for now. In Deuteronomy 32, in the Song of Moses, um, we speak along those lines of how God, when He created the world, He, he set up the world uh, in proportion to the people of Israel. It's an interesting expression, but I think He's saying God had this purpose all along to bring blessing to the world through Israel. And in Deuteronomy, we hear about the nations hearing of what God is doing to Israel and marveling at it and learning something about how different and special and wonderful the God of Israel is. So chapter 4, I think we're still there, aren't we? Chapter 4, verse 6. Observe these decrees and laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom, chapter 4, verse 6, your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people. Or chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, we already read. What other God is like this? What other God has done this? And, and in the history books of the Bible, we, we read about that taking place. That people, having heard the rumours of what God had done for Israel, marvelling at it, trembling before it. <laughs> and even people coming to Israel, deliberately coming, to hear, for example, later on, uh, when the Queen Sheba comes to, to Solomon, his teaching and his wisdom, hearing great things about the wisdom and the, and the, the law of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord, and so they're flocking to Israel. Little hints of it throughout Deuteronomy. In the law section in the middle, chapter 12 to 26, all through those laws, we don't just get laws about kings and property, landholders, we don't just get laws about the poor and the slave, but we also get commands about the, the strangers, the refugees, the migrants who come into your land and treat them well, blessing them, welcoming them. You are a slave in Egypt, you know what it's like. You know that God had mercy on you. You have mercy on others because you welcome them into your, into your land, your blessing, into the kingdom of God. Don't just be like the other nations. Don't just seem to be strong in your diplomatic relations. Be different. Be a blessing. The other end of the book, chapter 32, at the end of the Song of Moses, we have an invitation. Like many of the Psalms have a similar invitation. Come with me to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. After this big story of Israel's choosing and blessing and failure and sin and judgment and final rescue, finally, verse 43, rejoice, O nations, with this people. Not just rejoice over Israel before the nations, 
but rejoice our nations with his people. I think it becomes brighter and brighter throughout the Bible that God will be a blessing through Israel to the world. So that's the first big point this morning. So Deuteronomy, God is the creator God. The creator God of all nations, he judges and saves all nations. Secondly, now, let's think about Israel's specialness, the merciful choice, the promise and salvation of the Lord. There's a lot of similarity between the experience of Israel in the Old Testament and the experience of Christians in the New Testament. Same kind of pattern. They were rescued and, and saved, like Christians are rescued and saved. They are now called to live as God's people, just like Christians are called to live as God's people. That kind of pattern is picked up from 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3. Just like they were saved, so you were saved. Just like they needed to trust and obey the Lord, so you need to trust and obey the Lord. Yeah, there's a similarity there. Let's, let's notice that. First, they were chosen, Deuteronomy chapter 7. They were chosen to be God's special people, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery and power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love for a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands, but those who hate him he will repay with their, their face of destruction. He will not be slow to repay with their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands decreed from the Lord by you today. He loved you. He chose you. Not because you're great, powerful, mighty, and he needed someone great, powerful, and mighty. In fact, the opposite. You were small. You were nothing. You were slaves in Egypt. You were, before then, a wandering, nomadic people. This highlights the nature of grace and election. Now, God's grace, God's election, is personal. It's his free choice. God, at this point, doesn't act. Sometimes you have a conversation with an atheist, or perhaps you read something on the internet about an atheist speaking, and they say, well, you know, surely God should have done it this way. Why didn't God do it this way? As if somehow when it comes to God's salvation, there's like a, I don't know, like an insurance policy actuarial test about exactly the way God should do it with percentages and measurements, or as if there's some kind of formula that can be completed. God must do it this way. That's not how grace works. When we did come to the point where the Bible speaks about God's grace, we're speaking about his free personal choice. It's free. And as a result of any personal choice, there's a mysterious element to it. There is, um, you could say, an arbitrary element. Not in the sense of like, just sort of random, like, God just goes, ah, oh, she's there, just come so random. It's not that kind of thing, you know, just that kind of guy. It's not that kind of random. But in the sense of, God does it because he does it. No one deserves it, no one earns it. There's no law or percentage or spreadsheet that requires it. It's the wonder of God's free choice. That's what Deuteronomy 7 is saying. Mercy is free, and so it is surprising rather than calculated. God gave a promise to Abraham, to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, a gracious covenant promise. That song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 is a celebration of that. It speaks of Israel's creation of birth. 
Israel to meet his name, Jeshurun. And Jeshurun is like described as a, as a child born and nurtured and treasured. Not only were you chosen because you weren't huge, great, and powerful, come across to chapter 9, Moses says you also were chosen because you were pure, godly, and holy. Chapter 9. And this does read very much like something from, say, the book of Romans or something like this. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, we're now about to cross the Jordan, rebellion, and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities, walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them. You've heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? Be sure today, the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, and you drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. It's on account of the wickedness of those nations the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. You are a stiff-necked people, stiff-necked people, suddenly unrighteous. Like my dog Sophie taking her for a walk when she sniffs something delicious, like, I don't know, uh, she wants to, some roadkill she wants to eat or something really gross. And I try and pull her away, and she sees a dog and wants to growl at the dog. You know, something stubborn and pulling at it. Dogs are like dog owners there. They kind of dangle in the air off their leaves rather than be taken in another direction. He's saying, that's what you guys are like. You're stubborn. He tells the story of the golden calf, which is the emblematic story of Israel's rebellion straight after the Exodus. They've just seen the wonder and power and grace of God. He rescues them, and then they go, I know what we'll do. We'll, work. we'll create our own statue of God to worship and bless us. And then he lists other examples of their rebellion in the desert wanderings. Not because you're powerful, not because you're godly, but chosen and rescued by God's grace alone. Not by works, so you can boast, not by human effort, but by God's free, generous, unearned, uncalculated grace. Why has God saved people just because they believe in him? Well, God saves people because he chooses to. It's his good, gracious pleasure, that's why. Yeah? It's not something that is earned and achieved, even by them believing it, as if God thinks, oh, believing is so precious. That earns my faith. No, it's God's free choice to save those who choose to call them that. They are rescued, preserved, and will continue to be preserved by God's grace, furthermore. They came out of Egypt by God's grace, according to his promise. They were preserved through the wilderness, despite their rebellion, 40 years. And then they're about to come to the promised land. And he'll preserve, he'll bring them into the promised land, and he'll preserve them in the promised land by his grace and blessing. So that middle section of the book, chapter 5 to 26, both begins and ends that way. Chapter 5 begins with the Ten Commandments. Listen, the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Have no gods before me. Don't make an idol. Don't assume my name. Remember my Sabbath. Because I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's how it begins. Yet even the Sabbath command in Deuteronomy, this is the second example of the Sabbath command, um, doesn't talk about the creation of the world in six days. It speaks about keep the Sabbath because I rescued you out of Egypt. 
and for you to land rest so rest. And chapter 26, at the end of that next sermon, ends with a bringing of first fruits and coming into the temple of God in the place where he put his name, saying, God, my forefathers wandered, you've rescued us from Egypt, and now we enjoy this plenty of your grace. You've made us, you've saved us, you've blessed us. All through the laws, we get reminders of God's blessing, God's grace, and God's rescue. Do this because you were rescued. Do this because you're God's people. Be holy because your God is holy and he's made you this precious holy people. And again and again and again, remember God's grace in all that you do. Your ability to continue in the land is only because of the Lord's ongoing grace. Look at chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to you, the land, large, flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant, then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He rescued you, and everything you're eating and enjoying, he gave you. Salvation and the giving of the Lord, is that right? Hang on, 36. Come on, page that's on. 
Go on the right hand page. Should be salvation, the men of the law, never uh, being used in salvation. That's not very long. It's not that bad back there. What is what page? Page 40. <laughs> Sorry, not 36. There you go, page 40. Um, you'll see there, that's a good summary of what we just looked at. That you will rescue first by God's grace and then give the law as a response. So it's not obey the law and then I'll rescue you. Yeah? The law of man will bless you all come in the context of God's promise, God's preservation, God's patience, God's provision of sacrifices for atonement. However, point three, we're nearly done. Point three, however, at the same time, this is where it gets complicated, it's more than just what you have there on page 40 of the book. There is the necessity of obedience in the law and a curse for disobedience in the law. There is a necessary necessity of obedience and a curse for disobedience. Now, in the first place, this is just because the proper response to God is to obey Him. You find we'll look at a similar thing in 1 Corinthians later in the week. Uh, you've been rescued, go live as God's people. If you don't continue to live as God's people, you have no share in the kingdom of God. So it's, it's, you're not saved to carry on as you like. It's not that God's got them over the border, gives them a passport and a hundred bucks and says, good luck. No, you've been rescued to belong to God as God's covenant people, to be his holy kingdom of priests in his promised land, the kingdom. It's a proper response. Like we said yesterday, obedience is part of loving God. Chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. You put it forth, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Obey his commandments. Think of his commandments. Talk of his commandments. It's a proper response. You enjoy him as an ongoing blessing as you continue to live as God's people, rescued and preserved by God, living in right relationship. No, but that's where it is the same as Christians, yes. We continue to live as Christians and we continue to demonstrate our faith, faith by faith alone, our faith alone shown and manifest in our lives of love. Yeah, we don't show repentance and godliness and obedience. There is a question as to whether we truly have trusted in God for our salvation. Yes. However, it's a little more than that in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, there is an extremely strong emphasis on obedience for ongoing blessing. A very strong emphasis, more so than the New Testament experience of the Christians. Not the same as the New Testament. Their ongoing obedience is how they continue to enjoy blessing. Their ongoing obedience is how they continue to enjoy blessing and so live in the land. At this point in the Bible, there's not a lot of talk about life after death. There's not a lot of talk about heaven or um, the new creation or what happens at the final judgment. Not really much this early. Hints. Hints, but not much. And so a lot of the talk is, how do I enjoy life in the land? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's how do I enjoy life in the land? Well, the answer of Deuteronomy, a significant part of the answer, is by continuing to obey everything the Lord has said to you. How do I attain life? Well, Deuteronomy's answer is, oh, how do you attain life in the land? By obeying the law. And ongoing life in the land, survival and blessing in the land is dependent upon their obedience to the whole law. 
But in, in the covenant of Moses, in the kingdom of God under Moses, in the promised land, the law, obedience to the law, is a very big part of it. Not just believing the promise, but obeying to continue the blessing. And that's why the New Testament says the law is not based on faith, but on works. The law is based on continuing to obey everything. The law is um, uh, life comes by obeying the law. Now it's complicated. You could think about it this way. For an Israelite, they are justified by faith in the promise to Abraham, justified by grace, and in another sense, justified by their ongoing obedience as a member of the covenant people in the land. So you would be blessed by trusting in the promise and blessed by obedience. Or you could be blessed by the promise and sit under the curse of the disobedient people. And so you walk off into exile, godly and ungodly, believing and unbelieving. They're all kicked out of the land, aren't they? Godly and ungodly, believing and unbelieving. They all sit under the curse of the law while continuing to trust the blessing of the promise. The two things, the two experiences are happening for Israel at the same time. And that's why throughout this book we have this hesitancy alongside the positivity and the optimism and the promise. Throughout the loops of warning. And in chapter 4, make sure you obey, make sure you obey. There's blessing if you obey, but cursing if you don't. In the chapter 11, there's two paths, blessing and cursing. I mean, two paths, either you obey and bless, or disobey and curse. Which way are you going to go? At the end of the whole book, chapter 27 and 28, that's what we'll turn to now, chapter 27, come on to chapter 27, there's obedience equals life, disobedience equals death. Obedience equals blessing, disobedience equals cursing. Obedience means continuing the land and the kingdom, disobedience means exile from the land. And it's not 50-50. The way we have the sermon presented in Deuteronomy 27, the emphasis is on the cursing. The hint is you won't continue to obey. The kingdom won't last. It won't endure. Deuteronomy 27. Uh, a, a kind of memorial is described here. Half the nation will go up one mountain, half up another. Maybe you could picture up one side or the other of Craig Mountain or something. Um, and, and half up one, half up the other. Um, and one side will proclaim blessings on obedience. The other side will proclaim cursings on disobedience. Deuteronomy 27, verse 12. When you cross the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And verse 13. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. But in the book... Yes, verses 1 to 14. Yes, so blessing is described there. 
It's at a time when Israel is going into exile, experiencing the curses of Deuteronomy. So come across to Jeremiah 31, and I'll close with this today. What Moses foresaw, Jeremiah says, is coming soon. Knowing him personally, 
being forgiven, our hope is not preservation in a geographical land, but eternal life in a new creation. The ruler shows us many truths of the gospel, as we've seen, and it also points us ahead, kind of by contrast, to how great the gospel is. It shows us many of the truths of the gospel, and by contrast, by opposite, it shows us how great the full gospel of the Lord Jesus is. You have it. You hear it. You can trust it. And it's the cross of God for the whole world. You can share with anyone you meet. Anyone in your tutorials. Anyone in your soccer team or your book club. Your neighbours, your flatmates, the people you meet. I would think as Christians you would want to meet new people outside of your church and your youth group and your schoolmates. I would think you would want to meet new people that you might have an opportunity to share with them this great gospel, which is the gift of God to all the world. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these good things. And we ask you to help as we process and digest these thoughts. And please, this year, give each of us the opportunity to meet others speak about you in others this year. In Jesus' name.